The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, church, uh, you might not know, but it's Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. So uh, we're going to pause from Genesis and we're going to go to the Gospel of Mark. So let me invite you to take a copy of the scriptures and open to Mark in the New Testament. It's on page 847 of a Bible in the rack. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, do grab one and open us. Uh, open with us there to Mark 11 and the triumphal entry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Uh, Mark's gospel is the shortest of the four gospel accounts, uh, but like all the other gospel accounts, spends a disproportionate amount of time and attention on this last week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion and resurrection. The Gospel of Mark, one-third of the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters of Mark, but one-third of it are just focused on this one week. So a lot happens very quickly in Mark, but then time slows down here at chapter 11 as we focus on Jesus who enters into Jerusalem to, to inaugurate the week of His passion is what we call it. So we're preparing our hearts for the celebration of Easter, but first we honor and remember Jesus' triumphal entry. If you've got your Bible open, you're ready to read together. Let's pray, and we'll ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures today. Gracious God, we, we turn now to your Word, believing that it is here that you promise to nourish and bless and sustain and grow your people. So, Lord, your people gather, and your people are ready to hear your Word. So, Lord, by your Spirit, Speak your inspired word to us that we might be inspired of heart, that we might be uplifted and encouraged and strengthened today. Cause us by your Spirit to fix our eyes upon Jesus who is risen and seated above and with Him all of our hopes. So Father, come now and bless your word to your people and may Christ be glorified, we pray in His name. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Mark 11. In the first 11 verses, this is the Word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And then they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. So keep your Bible open there in Mark 11 as we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. 
I want to draw your attention to an aspect of Mark's gospel that's actually uh, striking and significant. Mark's gospel, as I mentioned, is the shortest gospel, uh, and it's oftentimes accused of being like an action movie in that it's a fast-paced gospel narrative. It's constantly moving to the next thing, to the next thing. The action is dramatic, and it is incessantly focused on the main character, of course, Christ himself. And one of the most unique parts of Mark's gospel is his employment of perhaps Mark's favorite word in Greek, and we translate into English, immediately. The word immediately happens 42 times in Mark's gospel because Mark's point is to say, this happened, then that, immediately this, and on and on and on because Mark wants to get you to the point of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So you'll notice, even in our text, there are two occurrences of this. Uh, In verse 2 and in verse 3, Mark is always employing that things are happening immediately. The next thing and then the next thing. Even the details of all of this, they flow just straight through. You might be wondering, you know, somebody comes to take your cold and you say, wait, wait a second, I want more explanation than just the Lord said he needed. Okay, you can have it, right? Mark's point is to say, this is moving here because we want to get Jesus to Jerusalem. And once he's there, then we can really slow down to say, who is this man? And what is it that he has come to do? Some of the other details of Mark here is that we find the the details about the donkey. That's from Zechariah chapter 9, quoting an Old Testament prophecy to say that when the Messiah comes... He would be mounted on a donkey, which is exactly why Jesus says, let's see it happen exactly like this. But even in that, I want you to understand something of the humility of Jesus, that Jesus takes his donkey on loan. A donkey would would definitely be a humble creature to be sure, but even at this time, uh, if you were of great wealth or of great military might, you would have a whole fleet of donkeys. Jesus doesn't. He has to borrow it. Isn't that fascinating? He rides on a donkey that he doesn't own. So Jesus also says, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was not wealthy in that sense. It's emphasizing the lowliness of Jesus. And lowly Jesus is starkly contrasted because this is a victory parade. It's really what it is. This is a victory parade before the events of the victory, actually. And that's fascinating. These folks are waving palm branches, would have been uh, ordinarily associated with kind of welcoming back military conquerors back from the battle. Welcome back. You have delivered us. You have triumphed. Welcome back. And when they cry out with the words that they do, they're quoting from Psalm 118 as they say, Hosanna, as the children said rightly. It means save us. Save us, we pray. To cry out, Hosanna, is a cry for deliverance. It's a cry for redemption. And and for as much as it is a victorious triumph cry that you might say with a smile on your face, it's also the cry of the one who knows they need to be delivered, right? The person who knows that they need to be saved is the one who cries out, save me. If they don't think they need to be, they wouldn't cry out. And so when you see them crying out, Hosanna, you may understand something of maybe the way you felt this past week as I felt. Saying, oh God, 
What can deliver us from this evil? What will save our children? Oh God, Hosanna, save us. That's what this means. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they're saying, you, you are the one who will do it. It is an inscription of messianic identity. You are the one who has promised to come and do that, to come and deliver us, to come and save us. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They are saying, there's our king. There is our ruler. There is our sovereign one. Now, the detail in that, though, is where we find so much of the confusion about Palm Sunday. Because when we say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is Hosanna, the son of David, we know what we mean, and they know what they meant, but it wasn't the same thing. You see, when they cried out Hosanna, they were ultimately let down. When on Friday, the guy they cried out Hosanna to is dead. Because they were looking to Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. These Jewish pilgrims wanted Jesus to establish an earthly kingdom. And that's why Jesus is so abandoned on Friday. And all of what He does looks like such a losing proposition. It would be like if the city of Philadelphia planned a victory parade for the Super Bowl before they went to play. Had their victory parade and then lost. And the people say, that was a waste. What's this t-shirt for if you didn't actually win? This all looks like loss. That was a bust. And to the people, what Jesus eventually goes on to do looks like defeat and not victory because they were looking for the wrong kind of victory. But let's not be so hard on them. They're right. They just don't know how deeply right they are. When they cry out, Hosanna in the highest, it means, Hosanna, save us according to your highest exaltation. What they are saying about Jesus is true. They just don't fully grasp of how true it is. And so if you were to look back in Mark's Gospel, we won't take the time to do all this, but I'll just give you the notes on this. Three different times Jesus has predicted that he's going to go to Jerusalem, be delivered over, and killed, and then raised. First, in Mark 8.31, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise. Jesus says, I'm going to be presented to them and as I present myself to them, they will reject me. The very people who should have known best to receive Him will be those who will reject Him. The religious class, the elders, the priests, the scribes. He says also in Mark 9.31, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill Him. And when He is killed after three days, He will rise. And you should ask the question, who's delivering Jesus over to these wicked men? And in some ways the answer is Judas, isn't it? In other ways the answer is the religious leaders themselves. But also in another sense, Jesus delivers over Himself. Jesus is no victim he gives himself over to these wicked men eventually. And then just before this triumphal entry text, you can scan up in Mark 10.33, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
because the whole point of Jesus' earthly ministry was to come to the apex of conflict between him and his kingdom and the religious leaders that were so set opposed to him. Jesus is going to be delivered over to condemnation, to mocking, to death, and this is finally happening after three years of public ministry. And then when you turn the page and find in Mark chapter 11, they drew near to Jerusalem and Jesus is coming in all of the anticipation of his earthly ministry is bound up in this moment because Jesus has claimed to be king of the Jews, but you can't be king of the Jews if you're not in Jerusalem, capital city. So when he finally goes, it is as if he says, everything is on the table. I'm going to prove exactly who I am. And so when the people receive him, they receive him as such as the king of the Jews, as the one who is coming to deliver them and overthrow their Roman occupation. Now, here is the point. Here is the one point that I want us to see this morning. It's this. Jesus does not save us the way we want to be saved or the way we think we need to be saved. Jesus does not do things in accord with our wisdom, Jesus doesn't save us the way we want to be saved. So, as we think about that reality, let me ask you a very pointed question. What's wrong with the world? I mean, really, what in the world is wrong with this world and all of it? It's heartbreaking, isn't it? It's hard for me to just rattle off sometimes more and more concerns and needs. Glad to do it, but it's, it's, it's difficult at times, isn't it? To say these things are going on. What is wrong with the world? That's quite the question. And then what's, how do you fix it? Ask your coworker, ask your neighbor, ask your friend, ask them, what do you think is wrong with the world? And what would you do to fix it? And you're going to get a host of answers. Not enough gun control, too much gun control. Not enough government regulation, too much government regulation. Fair taxes, unfunded mandates, not enough inclusion and diversity, traditional values, closed-mindedness versus you're so open-minded that your brain has literally fallen out. And not saying all that doesn't matter, but to some degree or another, these things are not the real problem. They are the fruit of a deeper root of our real problem, and it's this, that humanity is utterly alienated from its maker because of their sin. Hostile to the God who has made them because of their sin. That's the problem. And we see it here. These people wanted Jesus to be the rising star of a new political entity. That's what they wanted. To overthrow the occupational forces of Rome. To raise Israel from the dust to national prominence again. And they expected Jesus to do it by the force of a sword. So Jesus, riding in to take his seat of authority, says to the Jews, Our time has finally come back. We're going to send these Roman occupiers scattering to the hills as we chase them out. And Jesus is going to lead us. And you can't blame them for their excitement. Because they have suffered oppression. They have suffered unrighteousness. They have suffered the darkness of the world. But, friends, they have made the same mistake that the church continues to make. 
They have forgotten this essential truth about Jesus' kingdom. What did Jesus say about his kingdom? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It is not of this world. Meaning it is not ushered in by the mechanisms and resources and agencies of this world. If that were the case, then Jesus would be the type of king that they wanted him to be. But Jesus did not come to deliver us from government overreach or underreach. Jesus came to deliver you from you. From your sins and my sins. That's why Jesus has come. The kingdom that Jesus rides into Jerusalem to inaugurate by way of His death and resurrection is a spiritual kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. It is the inbreaking of the last days dawning upon humanity, ushering the last era of redemptive history before the fullness of time comes to pass. And we live in that time. We live in those days when the kingdom of Jesus has come and it is still coming. We live in what we call the already but not yet. The inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom. It's here in one sense and it is still yet to be here in its fullness. And along the way, we are so tempted to make the same mistake that was made on this Palm Sunday to assume that if the kingdom was really coming, it would look like how I want it to be. And if Jesus was really ushering in his kingdom, he would do the things that are on my agenda for him to do. Rather than doing what he has determined to do from all the foundation of the world to accomplish, to bring about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' kingdom doesn't look like what you expect or what I expect or what they expect. Jesus' kingdom looks like that. Ordinary, simple, outward elements, bread and cup, representing reconciliation between God and man, between man and woman, between one another. This is the kingdom that we live in by faith. Friends, that's still true 2,000 years later. This is still the kingdom that we live in by faith. We still live in the already but not yet kingdom. We still live in the kingdom of heaven that has come to earth but has not yet transformed the entirety of the earth yet. So we are unsurprised when we dwell in the midst of darkness and wickedness and hate and strife and all the rest. We hate to see it, but we're not surprised by it. And that's perhaps deeply the most troubling part of it is that we begin to expect it and accept it. But we must call evil, evil, and darkness, darkness, and unrighteousness, unrighteousness, and say that the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ stands as witness against the darkness, stands as witness against death. And I say all of that because you need to have the right expectations of Jesus' kingdom. You need to have the right expectations of this Messiah so that we don't make the same mistake that the crowds made on that first Palm Sunday. So I say that by way of qualification, but let me also say this. That the longing in your soul for Jesus to make all things right, right now, is a longing that I totally identify with. Wouldn't it be great if it all would end? 
all of the sorrow, all of the suffering, all of the sickness, all of the unjust murder of our children, for it all to stop. That is a good and right desire. I don't intend to extinguish it by emphasizing the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom because I think the Scriptures encourage us to have a proper expectation of when that will be true. But it's not yet. It's not yet because it reminds us the Bible says that a day is coming. When? The Bible just says, soon. You say, how soon? The Bible doesn't answer. It just says, soon. A day is coming when He will, the Scripture says, put all His enemies under His feet. That He will, in the language of Psalm 110 and 1 Corinthians 15, rest His feet upon His enemies because they are a footstool to the throne of His kingdom. One day. But not yet. And one day He will make all things new. And we won't have to tell you about this prayer concern or that prayer concern or this disaster or that disaster or this sorrow or this suffering or this sighing because Jesus says, I'm making all things new. When? Soon. Soon. That will be a reality to behold one day. But for now, it's a reality that you can only see by faith. That's why the worship of the Christian church matters so much because worship friends is resistance worship is witness against the darkness you have not won you will not win worship is witness and resistance against darkness and hopelessness and sin and suffering and sickness and everything that is unjust and friends the unbelieving world does not have the equipment or the resources to make sense of these things they cannot solve it They cannot give you the balm that your soul needs to make sense of it all. But in Jesus Christ, we believe and we will sing together, Jesus Christ lives that death may die. I feel like I'm preaching Easter already here, right? But this is what we believe as the Christian church. Christ reigns over all things now. And His people are able to live by faith in the midst of present darkness, believing that ultimately light overcomes the darkness. So we must be citizens of this kingdom. We must declare ourselves to be those who are beneath the rule of Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. We join the praise of heaven who rightly articulates Hosanna in the highest, because we mean Hosanna to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the risen, reigning King of all creation. Friends, this is more true than gravity. Jesus Christ and His Gospel is more of a reality than the pew you're sitting in. Believe it with all your heart. And stand as witness against the darkness because it doesn't win. Let's pray. Gracious God, Lord, we need you and we need your Son, Jesus Christ, to reign in our hearts that we might be a corporate witness as the church, your people, to say that Christ reigns over all things. 
so that in the midst of this present distress, we would not be overwhelmed, but Lord, live by faith in a world that can't make sense of all of these things. Lord, only you can, and only you can give us the faith, hope, and love that we need to press on. So Lord, would you please do that for Christ's sake, for his glory and his church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.